Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to E2, Entrepreneurs Exposed, the podcast where we get to interview all kinds of interesting pioneers in the world of entrepreneurship. And today is my conversation with the so-called CEO whisperer, Cameron Harold. He's a great author, public speaker, and an entrepreneur. He is the mastermind behind hundreds of companies' exponential growth, including 1-800-GOT-JUNK, College Pro Painters, among others. The current publisher of Forbes magazine, Rich Carlgaard, actually called Cameron Harold one of the best public speakers he's ever heard. I highly suggest you watch his TED Talk. Just Google it. In this episode, we talk about all kinds of interesting topics, including bridging the culture gap across generations, spotting entrepreneurial traits in kids, and the five Fs of great life balance. So without delay, here we go. My chat with Cameron Harold. quick synopsis of your bio for those that don't know who Cameron Harold is. Sure. So I was, um, I was groomed as an entrepreneur, my father and both my grandfather's own companies. And, uh, they raised the three of us, the three kids to be entrepreneurial. Um, I had my first business when I was 21. I had 12 full-time employees when I was in second year university, ran a business for three years while I was in college and then left and, um, joined the executive team of a company called college pro painters. And I was coaching franchisees at a very young age, coaching businesses um, when I was around 24 years old. In fact, I actually hired and trained Kimball Musk, Elon's brother, as a franchisee 24 years ago, and also their cousin, Peter Reeve, who built Solar City. They both worked for me. I hired both of them and trained them to be entrepreneurs. So I've been coaching entrepreneurs really forever. After about four years on the executive team of College Pro, opening the West Coast of the United States for them, I went on and became a partner in a private currency company, a chain of auto body collision repair shops, built both of those companies up um, and then left there in early 2000. And I joined my best friend who was building a company called the Rubbish Boys. And we changed the name over to 1-800-GOT-JUNK. And I was the chief operating officer of that brand. And I took them, when I joined, we had 14 people at the head office. And when I left, we had 3,100 employees system-wide. And I was the chief operating officer for that business. Basically ran everything except IT and finance. Mm -hmm. Left there around 11 years ago now. Um, You know, we went from... 2 million to 106 million. And we were operating in 330 cities, 46 states, four prior, four countries. And when I left there 11 years ago, I started coaching and mentoring CEOs and companies all over the world. So I've been coaching real businesses in 28 countries. I've done paid speaking events on five continents. And um, I've got four books out. My first book was Double Double. My second is called Meetings Suck. My third, I co-authored with Hal Elrod. We co-authored The Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs Together. And then my fourth book comes out in a couple of weeks called Vivid Vision. And that's kind of me. Nice. Well, that's a lot. There's a lot to dig into. Brian's been on the podcast, so we did talk about your role at 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Why don't, why don't we start there? How did you guys engineer this incredible growth from 2 million to 106 million and 3,100 employees? Sure. And it's funny, the current COO of 1-800-GOT-JUNK, he and I actually started a franchise or a uh, sorry, a fraternity together 30 years ago. I've been friends with Eric Church, who's Brian's current CEO. We were friends three mm-hmm. decades ago. The way we re-engineered or engineered the growth, when I came in, Brian handed me his vision of what he wanted his company to look like. It's kind of the concept that I call a vivid vision. At the time, Brian called it a painted picture. And he handed me this vision of what he wanted his company to look like. And I was able to reverse engineer that. The three core focuses that I had in those early days, the first was to really raise our prices to a level where we could perform really high quality service, very similar to what Starbucks was doing. You know, Starbucks, you think of them today at the $5 coffee. Well, you can get a dollar coffee pretty much anywhere, but you can't get the great service and 
experience for a dollar. So we charged a premium and we were able to give a premium service and a premium product. Second thing we did was really obsess around culture. And I, I taught Brian in the very early days to build a great company. We had to build slightly more than a business and slightly less than a religion. And then third was to really leverage PR. And it was something that I'd done with Boyd Auto Body and Gerber Auto Collision and with the private currency company and also with College Pro Painters that if you're in the media, you're always in the media. And we just really wanted to have a foothold in all the major cities and have a really strong presence with the media. So if anyone was ever mentioning junk removal, we would always be in the press. And those three core focuses are really what allowed us to scale. You know, obviously putting the systems and processes in place, but anyone can do that. So can you say a little bit more about the culture that you implemented at 1-800-GOT-JUNK and what that might have looked like before you got into the business? Sure. So, you know, most companies really never talk about culture. And if they do, they think it's the free perks. They think it's the, you know, the giveaways, like the free massages and the the um, you know the, the special things you give people, and that really has nothing to do with it. It's almost the those are the extras. So culture, if you think of it in a family, you know if you just give your kids a bunch of stuff, you end up with a bunch of spoiled brats. It's the same as a company. You really have to get first off everyone aligned with where the family or where the company is going. So it's the alignment with that vivid vision. Secondly, it's really making sure that you've got the right people in the company. You know, and the adage that Jim Collins talks about is really overused, but getting the right people on the bus, wrong people off the bus, everybody in the right seats. We obsessed about that and we really pushed the wrong cultural cancers out of the company and really looked to get rid of the wrong people as much as we were also looking to recruit true A players. Most people don't know how to recruit talent. And that was something that at College Pro Painters, we had to hire 8,800 people every year. You know, most people don't know, but College Pro has 800 franchisees every year. And then those go out and recruit 8,000 painters every year. There's not a lot of companies on the planet that recruit 8,800 people every single year. So I actually knew all the systems and processes for bringing the right people in, recruiting, interviewing, selection, onboarding, training, and then the golden handcuffs and how to keep them as a part of the culture. And then third is really kind of creating the open communication systems, top down, bottom up, and laterally to really kind of you know support and, and help people grow. And I think if you really obsess around the, the fact that the leader's job is to grow people, they're all really kind of aligned with wanting to show up every day and doing their best job. How do you identify, you mentioned the cancers and the A players. How do you identify where there might be cancer within an organization? And of course, how do you identify the A players that you want to bring in? The cultural cancers are really easy to spot. I mean, you can see them just with their eyes rolling, the way that they show up at work, their, you know, their effort, the time they show up, the time that they leave, the the effort they're putting in, the suggestions they're making. They just, they ostracize themselves. It's almost like if you go to a cocktail party, you can see who the grumpy negative people are and you can see who the happy, friendly people are. They just kind of separate like oil and water separating in a glass. It would be very similar. So you can see who they are. And good leaders, if you're truly connected with your team, you can hear from the other members of the team who the grumpy people are and who the great A players are. You know, it's about it's about being really curious and asking them and spending time doing the skip level meetings and management by walking around and just getting really, you know, in with the business and getting to know people. If you pay attention, you're, you're just told, you know, everyone tells you who the good ones are and the bad ones are. Most people don't do anything about the bad ones. You know, they make excuses. They hold them for too long. And I've always said, if you have doubt, you have no doubt. You know, once yeah. you know that someone is wrong, you just got to get rid of them. And, mm -hmm. and when you know someone is good, you've got to make sure you handcuff them. And if you don't handcuff them to your company, guys like me will come and poach them. What does that mean, handcuff them? Like, are you incentivizing well, them with money or is it more than that? No, it's way more than that. And most people think it's a golden handcuff program includes, you know, equity or mm -hmm. payment. But I'll give you like 
10 off the cuff ideas. You know, for each person, you have to truly understand what satisfies that individual and how your company can serve their end needs. So for some, it might be flex time. For some, it might be more vacation time. For some, it might be more responsibility, might be less responsibility. Some people might want you to buy a company and let them run it or spin off a division and let them run that. Um, some people want more visibility at the board or visibility at the, the press. Um, they might want more leadership development. They might want more time with the C-suite. They might want equity or phantom stock or profit sharing. Uh, maybe they want to do their executive MBA while they're building, you know, doing their role. You just have to truly understand people. And most leaders don't actually get to truly know the people. They're so focused on the business or themselves or the press or, you know, the wrong stuff. But if you really get curious and truly understand the employees and especially the A players, you can really get to understand how your company can serve them. And then I've always said that A players are your racehorses, B players are your workhorses, and C players have to go to the glue factory. And we tend to spend our time with the C players and that removes us from spending time with the A players. Now, the other thing that I do is I put all the executive team out on the floor with all the employees so they actually sit on the floor. Nobody in my companies that I coach all over the world ever has a private office. You know, I get them out on the floor with the employees so they're truly connected with what's going on. There's a lot I want to unpack around that incentive <laughs> piece. So when, when you talk about people, you know, the A players potentially wanting, uh, you know, you got to handcuff them. They want equity or they want more flex time or more vacation time. Uh, you said something about spinning off and running a division. I think most employees, even the type A more ambitious ones, are still cautious when approaching a C-level executive and asking them for a raise, let alone to spin off and run a division of a company. So I guess the question I want to ask you is how many times have you identified that that individual or set of individuals that you've seen in your career that want to actually spin off and run a division? How many times has it happened? Has it been successful? Yeah, often. In fact, yesterday I was actually down in Seattle um, running a strategic planning meeting for one of my clients. They're about a $20 million company and they had their executive team of nine people off site for the day with me. And I sat with the uh, the CEO after the full day and I said, you know what, you've got a really strong team, much stronger than you thought and much stronger than I thought. And I think it's actually time to bring some other people's titles up to get stronger um, job descriptions and remuneration packages in place. But almost across the board, it's time to bring this whole team up a level and then also give them more responsibility. But it's because we spent time with them, you know, so it's the same thing as seeing, you know, a, a division to spin off or a company like there's so many, especially Gen Y today, that have these entrepreneurial traits or these entrepreneurial desires. Well, instead of letting them completely just quit and go start their own PR firm, why don't you start one up and let them run it and you you hold 40% and let them hold 50 and take you know, 10% uh, and divide it up amongst some early stage employees for them. If you're an entrepreneurial organization, you can grow people without losing them. And, and you don't also even have to do that. Again, maybe the employee just wants more flex time. You know, Maybe a great employee wants... Uh, more visibility with the board of directors. So invite them to the board meetings. Like it, it's just truly sitting down with them and getting to know them. And it's not waiting for them to come to you. It's identifying who those A players are, the strong culture fit and the strong results people, and then spending time with them because you need to know what they're looking for before they ask you. If you wait until they ask you, chances are somebody else might offer that to them before you do. So you said Gen Y. Let, let's get into that a little bit because I, I know that you've often uh, spoken about the mixing Gen X and Gen Y and how, you know, these two generations can actually work very productively together. Can you get into some real examples of that? Well, it's actually the first time in history that four generations have been working together in the workforce. You know, you consider that Gen Z 
the oldest Gen Z person right now is 22. The youngest Gen Y is 23. The oldest is 38. The youngest Gen X is 39. The oldest is 52. The oldest baby boomer is 53. Sorry, the youngest baby boomer is 53. The oldest is 75. And you might even have a couple traditionalists in there that are 76 plus, right? So you could have five generations working in a company today, but for sure three, if not four. So um, it's just truly understanding the demographics. The Gen Y split is really interesting that when you go with the plus 30 to 38 year olds and the, the 22 to 30 year olds, they're very different. The 30 to 38 year old Gen Y have known a world without technology. The 22 to 30 year olds have never known a world to exist without technology. Right? Their, their entire world, there were computers. Um, you know, I'm the oldest in Gen X. I'm 52. And no one on my university floor in first year of college had a computer. I brought the first computer into College Pro Painters and my CEO thought I was crazy. And, wow. and the reality was, well, and the reality was I only used it once every week or two to run a spreadsheet. So there was no real, uh, you know, and we could like type a letter, but there was no real practical purpose for a computer back then because there was no software to use. And that was only you know, 24 years ago. Yeah, right. It's the stuff that we take for granted in thinking, well, why don't the baby boomers embrace technology? Because they don't fucking know it, man. They didn't understand it. They were never around it. Like they were, you know, they 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 dealt with secretary pools. You know, it's interesting. Sorry to interrupt you, but I've, yeah. you know, when people talk about culture, you know, there, there there's a lot of terms that they throw around, and it usually has to do with creating a, some sort of an environment that is appealing to everybody, and they just hope that that attracts everyone. I've never actually heard anyone on the podcast or even when I've been offline discussing this with people describe culture in the way that you have with a cross section of five, potentially five generations working under one roof. No wonder so many, so many people are talking about culture as a, as a key topic. I think the reality is most people don't, don't actually understand culture. You know, they, they understand what the media is writing about in the free parks like the massage room and the Wii room and bicycles on campus, but that's not culture. I've coached companies in, in 28 countries on five continents and, and then probably a, a dozen of them rank in the top five in their country to work for. So when, when you really get into what culture is, it's alignment with core values. It's alignment with core purpose. It's a true BHAG that is not a measurable number like a billion customers. Um, it's a really clear, vivid vision so that everyone is aligned with the vision. It's getting rid of the wrong people. It's it's truly flipping the org chart upside down where the CEO is at the bottom supporting the VPs who support the managers, who support the customers, who support the clients. It's um, it, it's truly growing people. And then it's the free perks, right? It, it's giving them the meeting rhythms to actually do their jobs and the technology tools. And, and I think when you understand each of the different generations and what they bring to the table, you can really build a powerful company because, you know, the baby boomers bring some spectacular skill sets into the business. They bring planning. They bring communication. They're able to get a bunch of stuff down, done without technology. And if we can learn that and then leverage it with technology, that can be powerful. And then you yeah. get the, young, the younger Gen Y who can leverage technology, but they're not really sure how to run a business yet. And they've got all the confidence, but they've never failed. Well, if you can learn from them on the technology skills in Marriott, like there's a really great, there's just a ton of skill set there. And I think the, the true companies that can embrace what everyone can bring to the table can really win. In terms of, I guess, some real examples of cultures that uh, you've identified or that you've coached or you've witnessed from afar that are getting this right, can you give some real 
examples of uh, companies doing that? Sure. So it's it's companies like well, Blue Grace Logistics is a great one. These guys are a, a freight forwarding and a, um, a freight logistics company based in Tampa, Florida. They rank as the number one company in Florida to work for. They, they got Ernst & Young, best um, employer in Florida, YPO member. I've coached them from around 60 employees up to 503 in the last four years. They just raised $255 million from Warburg Pink as a top tier investment bank. They have um, an open office environment for 100% of the employees. They've banned the tie. They've banned suits. They have what they call a first date dress code. Um, they're truly teaching all of their senior executives and the older members technology by getting the younger kind of 22-year-olds to teach them about the apps and the tech hacks that they can use. And then they're actually mentoring in the opposite direction where they've got very senior members mentoring the very, very young leaders in the company. So they've kind of identified the early stage leaders and the, the older kind of wise people and they're mentoring them in both directions. They do daily huddles. They have 503 people come to a daily huddle. I was there last week and I calculated the cost of the daily huddle at $9,000 and you multiply that over the course of a week and a year. It's an extraordinary amount of money, but they're spending seven minutes a day getting all the, the employees together. Like they're truly embracing, you know, this inclusiveness and they just get it. And they're a very old services company, right? They're in trucking. Yeah. Yeah. Just just quickly to go back to that $9,000 huddle calculation for, for those analytics geeks that are listening. How would one go about that exercise determining how much their huddle is costing them? Oh, so I have a, there's an app that you can download called Meeting Cost, and you write and put in the amount of um, senior executives, the amount of employees, and the approximate hourly wage for each of them, or the approximate annual wage, and then you just press start at the amount of the start of the meeting, and it shows people. It's a really great. I use it as 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 a reminder to people. You know, we're not screwing around here. Like we're sitting down in the meeting. We start on time. We stop on time. We uh, we only invite the right number of people to the meeting that are supposed to be there. We control the idle chatter. We use a parking lot. Like I, I run really highly effective meetings and then I show people the cost of it so they understand why to take them seriously. And then you mentioned you've read, you've written a book called, called Meetings Suck, but it sounds like it's about not knowing how to run them properly. That's the reality. It was actually one of my clients who was talking about the fact that meetings suck. And I said, you know, when you take a look around you, how many of your executive team have ever been trained on how to run meetings? And he said, well, let me ask. And he asked, and only one out of nine people had ever been trained on how to run meetings. And I said, you know, talk about your employees. How many of them have been trained on how to attend meetings or participate? And it was about 4% of 100 people had ever been trained on how to show up. I'm like, well, <laughs> meetings don't suck. We suck at running them. And it, it's yeah. no different than, you know, Little League Baseball. If you didn't teach a kid how to hold a bat and how to throw a ball and catch a ball, he'd hate Little League. But baseball doesn't suck. It really sucks if you don't know how to hold a ball, though, or throw a ball, then it sucks for sure. And I think, you know, even with interviewing, like, I don't understand why companies are saying it's hard to find people. It's really easy to find people if you know how to do interviews, but really nobody has actually trained their team on how to do interviews. Do you have a process for that as well, for in doing interviews? Yeah. yeah. Well, of course, yeah. I mean, you know, if I if I look back at my start at College Pro Painters, when we had to hire and train 8,800 people every year, we systemized it tightly. And that's how you, like, I knew 10 minutes into my first interview with Kimball Musk that he was going to be perfect, but I still did two 90-minute interviews before I hired him. How did you know? I knew from the cultural vibe. I knew from his, ener his energy, his enthusiasm, his laugh, his presence, that even at 20 years old, 21 years old, he had a really strong physical presence and a really strong energy, and a, he was going to be a great leader. And then when I dug in, I remember him just talking about his goals and the sports that he played and the activities he was involved in and, and just... Um, you know, goal oriented and driven. And 
uh, he, he was trying to explain, he was trying to actually explain the internet to me and it was 1993 and we were laughing cause I'm like, I didn't, we didn't know what the internet was. Like I didn't have an email address until two and a half years later. It was for socially awkward people back then, I think. Oh, it was way before socially awkward. <laughs> yeah. Like that was the year his, bro- his brother, Elon registered the domain, the literal letter X.com. You know, there was only 26 single letter URLs and he got the coolest of all of them. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was way early. Like they played underwater hockey. Like they were way socially awkward. In that first 10 minutes, could you share some questions that somebody recruiting talent could use to identify whether or not this person's got potential in the first 10 minutes? Yeah, it actually starts before the questions. So most people will go into an interview with, geez, what questions am I going to ask? But what I go into the interview with is what behavioral traits am I looking for? So we knew that going in to look for franchisees, that we were looking for, for five core traits, leadership, attainment, tenacity, introspection, and interdependence. Those were the five core traits we were looking for. And then for every trait, we had a defined definition in writing that was very easy to understand. And everyone in the company knew them. So like tenacity was the dog-like work ethic to get over, under, around any obstacle put in one's path. And then we would also have five questions that we would ask for each of the five interview traits. So it's it's less about, and I, I've even covered a lot of the questions that I, I use in interviews in my first book, Double Double. It's less about the questions and it's more about what am I looking for so that when I show up on an interview, I'm completely focused on that and I don't get sidetracked by their stories or their energy because I'm always going back to, you know, how can he show me or she show me what their leadership skills were? And but you said energy was energy is an important factor, as you mentioned with well, Musk's brother, right? Yeah, the energy for me was just a culture fit. It was just like I liked his energy. I liked his style. But that was a leadership that would kind of refer back to leadership. You know, he had the, the charisma and the charm to lead people. Right. If he could grab my attention when I was trying to stay focused, I'm like, okay, you got me. You'll, you can, you know, you can wow the housewife. Like he's got a big presence too. He's the same size as me. He's six foot four. So he kind of walked into the room and, you know, dark hair and he was just like chatting and happy. And he sat down and it's funny because his, his cousin, Peter Reeve did not have that presence at all. In fact, I actually hired Peter Reeve based on how strong Kimball was. Hmm. Interesting. Um, sorry, sorry, pardon my ignorance. You said attainment. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, goal-driven. So the attainment is the the striving towards goals. So this is a person that, you know, wakes up in the morning setting goals. They've got, you know, three-year goals, one-year goals. They're reading books on on stuff. They're they're learning on their own. They they have kind of a purpose, right? Well, Kimbo was laughing, saying that he hated the fact that he was in business school at Queen's University because the professor told him in his first week that he was being groomed to be a middle manager at a company. And he's like, geez, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I don't want to be a middle manager. Like he had goals going into that program. Let's unpack that a little bit. In terms of identifying when a child or a teenager wants to be an entrepreneur or has the potential to be an entrepreneur, how can one parent or mentor or guidance counselor spot that and foster that? Yeah. So I did a, um, a talk that's on the main Ted.com website about raising kids as entrepreneurs. And I talk about the entrepreneurial traits that you can spot in children at a very young age. So the traits tend to be, and you'll laugh at these, they tend to be attention deficit disorder, bipolar disorder, and Tourette's. Most entrepreneurs are on the spectrum for bipolar which is the manic depression. They're definitely on the spectrum for attention deficit disorder, not necessarily ADHD, but definitely the ADD. 
And then Tourette's is thinking out loud is on the spectrum. So I can, I can kind of unpack each of those as well. But attention deficit disorder is not a disorder. It's a superpower if you want to be an entrepreneur because it allows you to see everything. What's happening with the market, the economy, your suppliers, your customers, you know, the, you, you kind of don't get bogged down in any details because you're seeing too many and you delegate quickly because you can't, you're kind of overwhelmed. And that's a strength. The mania of bipolar is why people follow us and the stress and depression is simply us course correcting afterwards. So the medical and then thinking out loud is endearing as an entrepreneur because people realize that they can trust us because we're not calculated and thinking about what we do. Now, those three traits, according to the medical community, are disasters. But we're not trying to be doctors. You know, if you were a doctor, ADD would be bad. If you were a doctor, bipolar is bad. If you're a doctor having Tourette's, I don't know if it's bad, but it certainly isn't going to help you. Like there's not a lot of professions that those three traits would be strengths for. However, Ted Turner, Bill Gross, Steve Jobs, Richard Branson, Henry Ford all had those traits. So maybe they're not diseases after all. So I try to find those traits in kids and say, okay, that kid's different. Let's embrace that. And are they entrepreneurial? Like, do they spot ideas? Do they want to make money? Do they, are they driven in that way? Because a lot of kids who have those traits are also entrepreneurial. Like, have you ever found a doctor to be energizing? No, they're flat. They're boring, but they're supposed to be. They're supposed to think and be analytical and be non-emotional, but fuck, no one's going to follow them. Now, have you ever found an engineer to be like exciting or spot opportunities? No, they're supposed to like fix something. Entrepreneurs are supposed to spot opportunities. Attention deficit disorder allows you to spot opportunities because you see everything around you. So it's not a disorder. And that's the first thing. The, the next part is if you spot your kid having these traits, because I only believe that 3% of the population should be an entrepreneur. How did the you other, arrive I, at that number? Sorry. Well, the other 95% have to work for us, right? So like not everybody can be running a company. We all need employees. So if, if you kind of think about it that way, it's around 3% of the population would be entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. So when you, when you come up with that number, if you look at a classroom, you know, one out of 30 kids, those are the bad behaviors. No, those are the entrepreneurs. <laughs> the kid who can't sit still, awesome, embrace it. But what happens is we're told them to sit. Like if I showed you my transcript from university, I actually have it in front of me because I was reading someone the other day. It's kind of scary. Like I'll read you, I'll read you my fourth year my fourth year grades, C plus, D, B plus, C minus, B minus, C. And give the, give the applicable courses <laughs> in order as well. All right. I'll read. I'll read. Okay. So um, <laughs> business, C plus, law, introduction to private law, D, law, contract law, B plus. Um, funny enough, it was the second time I was able to take the same course because I talked my way back into it. They changed the number and didn't realize I got to take it twice in four years. Uh, company law, C minus, bank law and negotiating instruments, B minus, and international investment law, C. But like, I got a C plus in business, <laughs> personnel management. I'm like, really? Um, I also got, by the way, this is funny. Where's my macro or accounting? Management accounting. I withdrew from management accounting. Uh, and then I got an F in my first year at management accounting. So I failed management accounting. 15 years later, I was quoted in the opening paragraph of chapter six of the same textbook that I failed. I was the expert they talked about in budgeting. That is something, karma. something phenomenal, right? Karma. There's Unbelievable. Wrong, yeah. There's something wrong with the fact that like, and like I was taking a course in third year or second year university on management where we were learning about hiring and interviewing people. And I got a C minus and, um, but I had 12 employees and I'm like, they don't know what they're talking about. 
<laughs> yeah, introduction to management. Sorry, I got a C. I got a C. Introduction to management. I got a 2.5, but I also had 12 employees. So maybe the program isn't rigged in our favor because I can't memorize stuff, but I can deliver. I mean, so, look, the program, hey, you can talk about the education curriculum if you want to get into it, but it's probably too deep with, with uh, only 10 minutes left. But it's obviously outdated. I mean, even today, I've got concerns about what my kids are being taught, and they're very young. Technology is just moving way too quick, and the skill sets that they're learning aren't applicable, and they're certainly not going to be applicable in the next decade. No, they won't be at all, because right now what we should be teaching kids is not how to memorize everything because everything's available on Google. So don't teach them how to memorize. Teach them how to find it. Don't teach them how to work on their own. Teach them how to collaborate and work as a group with a bunch of people that are really strong in different areas. I would give kids all of them an A and allow them to group, work in a group of five and pick up pick something they want to research. If they want to do a project on video games, awesome. At least they're, they're going to be excited, but they'll study the history of video games instead of the history of like who cares about the war of 1812 and Champlain coming down the St. Lawrence? Like really like it doesn't, it didn't matter when I studied it 30 years ago. It didn't matter a hundred years ago. It certainly doesn't matter today. So yeah. yeah, I think the school system is completely broken and um, we're, I think we'll see something in the next 20 years where we're going to see a complete collapse of the university and college system because 90% of the kids shouldn't be there and they're all coming out with a hundred thousand in debt. I think we're going to see a huge resurgence in apprenticeship programs where kids go and work for great companies for either minimum wage or for free, and they come out with experience and no debt. I want to shift gears. We've only got um, 10 plus minutes left. I want to get into your speaking stuff. Speaking of quotes and books, I mean, this quote straight out of Forbes magazine, Rich Carl Gard, I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, stated that Cameron Harold is the best speaker I've ever heard. So that's pretty high praise. Um, he's the he's actually the publisher of the physical print edition of Port Forbes as well. He's not just a writer on Forbes online. First of all, I guess, what are some of the perhaps not so obvious things that make someone a great public speaker besides being 6'4", having great <laughs> presence, energy, all that stuff? I, I think it's really speaking from the heart and being themselves, not trying to, to like figure out some performance. It's just talking to the group. I think it's it's talking with your normal energy so that if you're an excitable person talking with an excitable voice, I think it's really trying to understand the audience and trying to help them that you're not there showing off. You're there trying to truly help the audience and give them specific take homes that they can value from. Um, I've been told for years that I don't do a good enough job selling from the stage. And, and I've always felt like I'm, my job isn't there to sell from the stage. I'm supposed to be there to give value. Um, and then I don't use any text on any of my slides. I just show photos. And, and for me, the photo I'll have, you know, in a, in a 60 minute talk, I might have 70 photos and I'll just talk and, and the photos guide my thoughts through to a storyline. And I think as long as you're focusing on giving good value to the audience and telling them good stories and, and speaking with your normal voice, your normal energy, you just, you just resonate with people. I mean, you've got a ton of topics that you speak on leadership, culture, how to build businesses, generating free PR, highs and lows of CEOs. One talk that I read that you give, which really stood out because I found the title to be super intriguing, um, Letters to My Younger Self. So okay. I'll let you explain what that talks about. Yeah, it's interesting. So when I left 1-800-GOT-JUNK, I decided to um, to journal every day for, for about three months. I spent 20 minutes a day journaling. And 
one of the chapters of my journal was letters to my younger self. And it was all of the business lessons that I truly had internalized and, and grew from. And, um, you know, I've been introspective about, and I just wrote these lessons down and they were the ones that I wanted to sink in. They weren't for anyone else. They were just for me. And then when people started reading my book, double, double, and they were talking about it, someone asked me to speak around them. So I, I just spoke on those things, but they were truly the, the lessons that I wish I'd known at, at, you know, 16 or 20 years old, um, because they would have helped me fast forward. You know, they were, a lot of them were the mistakes that I made in, in business. There's 50 plus of them, right? So what are your top, say, g- give me your top three. God gave us two ears and one mouth. Let's use them in that ratio. Mm. You know, that I think often as leaders, we're tending to talk and give our ideas, but the reality is our job is to grow people. And if we, if we ask questions and listen, you know, we can grow them. Um, and often they'll have the same ideas or better ideas than we have. Um, I think the second is that balance is, is impossible. So it's to find the five core areas of life, you know, fitness, friends, finance, faith, and family, and, and try to obsess about two of them per quarter and let, let three slide. But to try to be balanced on all five areas all, all the time is kind of impossible. So try to obsess about those. And then the last one I call it is rule number six. And rule number six is um, based on a story of Gorbachev and Reagan when they were meeting 30 years, 30 years ago over in the Soviet Union. They both had headphones on so they could hear each other, you know, Russian and, and English. And somebody kept coming into the room screaming and yelling and Gorbachev would laugh and he'd say, remember rule number six. And Reagan heard that and wrote it down. You know, somebody came in a couple hours later screaming and yelling and Gorbachev laughed and said, remember rule number six. And the guy smiled and relaxed and walked out of the room. It happened three times. And Reagan, at the end of the meeting, said to Gorbachev, you know, I said, I only have one question left. What's rule number six? And Gorbachev laughed and he said, remember, remember rule number six is rule number six is don't take yourself so effing seriously. Mm. And uh, Reagan laughed and he said, well, what are the first five rules? And Gorbachev said there aren't any. And I think that's the biggest lesson for me in all of this is at the end of the day, this is just what we're doing to make money. This is not our reason for being. This is this is just what we do to make a buck that. Our reason for being is the people that we interact with and the the influence we leave on the world and the people that we can help. And at the end of the day, we're all just walking each other home. So what's you know, your that, motivator? I mean, did you, did you go through a personal transformation where money was a big motivator for you and now it's not about that? Yeah, I mean, my, I, I got divorced seven years ago and my ex and I get along great. We had two amazing kids out of it, but I had everything. I had the big house in Vancouver and a big chalet up in Whistler and the private golf club and a private tennis club and you know, virtually almost no debt. And, um, and I wasn't happy and I, I had forgotten who I was and didn't really have hobbies and didn't have friends. And, and, um, every conversation I had was around work and it was fucking boring. And, um, at the end of the day, it's not that important, right? My kids, I didn't know my kids. I would, um, I would be there at dinner, but I wasn't present and I wasn't doing anything with them. And now I want to know them, you know, I want to like actually know them and I want to know my friends. I want to know their their insecurities and their fears and their passions. And I deflect when people say, how's it going? I don't talk about business. And then they go, no, I meant business. I'm like, yeah, it's fine. And then I just switch gears again. And like, I I actually try to deflect away from business all the time because it's really, I don't care what somebody's doing as an accountant or a lawyer or their company. Why they don't really care. It's just, we've forgotten to have a conversation. Did you come up with, um, you mentioned the five areas stuff that you came up with while journaling. Did you come up with that, those lessons when you were going through this difficult time? 
No, I, I heard it somewhere. I don't remember where. I try to give credit for all that stuff too. I've never really had a unique idea. I, I've always said my R and D stands for <laughs> rip off and duplicate, right? That, that um, I just take the best ideas and run with them. Some I, I read it somewhere that your five Fs are friends, family, fitness, faith, and finance, and and it's to try to you know have balance. What I adapted from that was it's impossible to have twenty percent balance in all five. Like you, you can't do it, right? Like yeah, you can't. It's very you can't hard. Well, you can't, you can't put in an eight hour day at work and think that you're being spiritual. Like <laughs> you, know, you can't, you can't do yoga for an hour and say that balanced out nine hours working. Like it doesn't work. Um, but you can take a few days off and not have your cell phone plugged in and not take it with you on weekends. And then all of a sudden balanced out Monday, Tuesday. So I, I try to just give myself a little bit of slack. I also learned it again when I was writing the, uh, the miracle morning for entrepreneurs with Hal Elrod. And, you know, there's days when my miracle morning includes hugging the pillow and hitting snooze four times. Like, it's just, I'm just not that guy, man. I can't get out of bed every day at five o'clock like hell does. And I'm not going to pretend I do. But there's, but I know that it helps me when I have a morning routine. You know, this morning I woke up, I forgot to do my cold shower, but I smudged. I did this like smudge stick and, and then I had tea instead of coffee. And then I put my mala beads and meditation beads around my neck and I did my five minute journal and I forgot to have my smoothie this morning, but like, but I give myself a break, you know, then there's other mm-hmm. days when I do like 12 out of the 12 things, you know, I have my lemon juice and I, like, I do everything on the list. Did you say lemon juice? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, that's a new one. So what is yeah, it about so, lemon juice? Well, so lemon juice, um, just makes your body more alkaline. So you, um, you drink a little bit of, um, so I put like an ounce of lemon in with warm water and drink that first thing in the morning. Okay. All right. So not pure lemon juice, like from, I don't know, you buy it in a bottle from the grocery store. No, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the stuff I use. I buy like pure lemon extract and put like an ounce of it in with, with water and that's what I drink. Oh, cool. I I love health hacks. So I might try that next month. And some of those just become habits. Like right now wearing the mala beads, that's not on my list, but I wake up every day and I put them on and they just remind me to stay present. And sometimes I, I take them off. Like yesterday I was driving and I took them off and, you know, did all hundred and whatever, 110 prayers. Um, Why? Cause people were looking at you funny. <laughs> no, I, no, no. I just took them off while I was driving so that I could, you, you, you hold each bead and say a little, um, affirmation. Yeah. So I did my yeah. hundred and whatever affirmations, but I don't have that on my list. It's just, it's something that's now become habit, you know? smudging has become a habit. Like I just, when I'm making my coffee or tea in the morning, my smudge stick is sitting there and I turn, I light it and then I smudge. So of the fitness, family, faith, friends, and finance, which is your best category and which is your worst category right now? Right now? Oh, right now, I would say the, the faith and family are probably my strongest two right now. And I'm probably getting ready to switch back into finance and fitness uh, next quarter. In fact, I know I am. I, in fact, I'm getting back into the fitness. So I got to kick that back up. This has been great. I mean, I've had a lot of fun talking to you. Is there anything that we perhaps should cover in these last couple of minutes that we haven't so far? No, I don't think so. I think you dug in pretty nicely in a couple of random areas. So <laughs> yeah, it's good. Normally, if you asked me that, I would I would talk about the fact that we're all just walking each other home, right? That none of us are getting out of this alive, but I already covered that. I'll give you one. I'll get, yeah, actually, I'll give you, I'll give you one. That's, that's pretty big. It's to, and I've done this. I run an event called the COO Alliance. It's the only network of its kind in the world for the second in command. And, and I've done it at every event this year that we have, I get everyone to write down one thing on a post-it note that they're struggling with personally. And, and then I collect all the post-it notes with no names on them and I shuffle them all up and I read them. 
And I get people to realize that every single person around you, whether it's your friends or your family or your business associates or your employees, everyone that you meet today is struggling with something personally. 100%. And what are, the, what are the common ones that come oh, up? Dude, I, had one, I had one last month that someone is getting, has a brain tumor getting released. Like, oh. like I had somebody say that they were gay and haven't come out yet. I had somebody say that they shouldn't be there because their child was sick and they shouldn't be at the event, you know, struggling with marriage, um, cheating on a spouse. Like it's, it's all over the board. It, but the reality is everyone is struggling and give them a break, man. Like I've, I've been always been kind of that hard driver and, and, um, it's only in the last few years that I realized that like maybe they're showing up late cause they're struggling at home with their kid, or maybe they're not productive cause their spouse is doing something like, you know, it, this is just what we do to make money. And I think when you become really human that way, it really, it, it really endears you to the people that you're working with or the, or the people in your life too. That's an awesome place to finish. Let's stop. Thank you, uh, Cameron, for that. That was great. Really appreciate it. Where could people find out more about you? Well, my books, my four books, Double Double, Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs, uh, Meeting Suck, and Vivid Vision are all available on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. And then CameronHerald.com or the, the COOalliance.com. Awesome, man. Well, congratulations on all of it. Your books, the COO Alliance, your incredible speaking career. Wish you all the best. Thanks, Adam. I appreciate it. It was great being able to chat today. Okay. Take care, man. Thanks, bye. See ya. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening and being a part of E2. E2 is sponsored by Scriberbase. Experts in subscription e-commerce, visit Scriberbase.com for more details. Indochino, made to measure suits and shirts at a great price. More at Indochino.com. And our good friends at Unbound Merino Stylish, simple merino wool apparel that can be worn for weeks without ever needing a wash. More at UnboundMerino.com. Your positive support means a lot to us, so if you've enjoyed the podcast, please leave a positive review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your audio. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric acid. Ever thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well, now it's easier than ever with Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Rafelson. We're the founders of Electricast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join Electricast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to ElectroCast.com and join our community today. ElectroCast. Transform your influence. ElectroCast.